0: Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 27.
1: But you know, it's like the principals or the administrators I worked with and who were colleagues of mine were like, I don't really understand reading. And so I'm going to go to this conference for principals and I'm going to see this latest software that's going to promise me all these results. And so we're going to buy it and we're going to be influenced in this way instead of being informed on it.
0: You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, teachers and educators. Um, I am really excited for you to listen to this conversation today. Well, I'm really excited for you to listen to all of my conversations, but (laughs) this is a really good one today. Uh, We kind of cover two different topics today, and that's really because I connected with Gail uh, because of the first topic, but her real passion is the second one. So um, we actually got linked up originally because of the work that she's done uh, for students with autism uh, through the STAR initiative at uh, University of Virginia. Uh, and Star stands for uh, Supporting Transformative Autism Research, um, and she and her colleagues were able to uh, take a a model from the medical world um, called an Echo model and adapt it for education. And through the use of virtual communities and uh, virtual uh, uh, like Zoom and um, Skype, uh, they were able to basically help schools and teachers who might not have the resources or knowledge really on how to serve students with autism. So we're talking about schools probably in really uh, rural areas and or um, really low socioeconomic areas, really just under supported schools. Um, and they create a community of professionals to help serve those students with autism better in those schools. The second topic of discussion we dive into is really what her passion is, and that is making sure that uh, principals and administrators, um, especially those at the elementary level, are knowledgeable and can show uh, proficiency in reading science. Essentially, um, you know how students learn how to read because, after all, uh, they are the ones who are coming in to observe, and um, they are supposed to be able to give feedback and and uh, on how to improve our teaching, right? But Oftentimes, the teachers are more knowledgeable about it. Um, And so that isn't a relationship that is set up for true growth or accountability. Um, So there's a ton of value in both of those, uh, both halves of that conversation, of both halves of this conversation. And uh, I hope you get uh, some of that value today. So before we get into it, though, I will remind you of a couple things. And all of these things can be found on our show notes page, which you can find at jabadoocom slash show 27. The first thing is the newsletter. I send out a weekly newsletter, um, really just with links to uh, the episodes, reminders that we've got episodes that are coming out. Um, so if you want to be part of that newsletter, you want to get that reminder email, uh, you can sign up for that. I am now selling some teacher tees. I put this together a couple months ago um, with uh, one of my friends from high school who's a great graphic designer. So we've got some awesome quotes that are all lined up for you, uh, really just to show off your teacher pride. So check those out. Um, Again, link is available on the show notes page. I have some affiliate links to any of the books that we talk about today. So if you hear a book that you're like, oh yeah, I kind of want to read that. I would love it if you could go to the show notes page and click on the affiliate link so that uh, you can not only get your book but also support this podcast in the process. And then the last thing uh, is we've got our Facebook group um, that, uh, again, I kind of just post reminders right now that we've got the episodes live but uh, looking to generate some conversation about you know some tools and techniques and all that good stuff uh, all about evidence-based practices. So check us out. Facebook group link is available on our show notes page which, again, is jabadoo.com slash show twenty-seven. That is J-A-B-B-E-D-U dot com slash show with the number two seven. And with that, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Gail LeVette. All right. My guest today has been a classroom teacher and administrator and is now a published researcher, clinician, and is assistant professor of research at the University of Virginia, where she works with the STAR Initiative, which we will dive into, and is a strong advocate for administrators being required to demonstrate knowledge about reading development, which we will also get into. Gail Lavette, thank you so much for joining me on the Jabbadoo Education Podcast. How are you?
1: I am great. Thank you so much for having me here.
0: Yeah. And thanks for giving me the thumbs up, making sure I got your last name, correct. (laughs) (laughs) We're all good. So, um, yeah, this is uh, a weird way how we got connected, but here we are and I'm excited to chat through some of your stuff. So we mentioned, I just mentioned it. The star initiative, um, is, uh, I have it written down. It's the supporting transformative autism research. Um, So that's kind of, I guess, your gateway into uh, University of Virginia, but then obviously also uh, your Ph.D. was in uh, being a reading specialist and as a teacher for a few years and as as an administrator for a few years, you just you've got the full picture of everything that's going on, it feels like. So (laughs) um, I always start us off, though, at the beginning, uh, which is your schooling experience. So take us back. Who was Dr. Gail Levett as a first grader or third or fifth or wherever you want to (laughs) start?
1: So I was um, a very shy student and I actually had to move around a lot as a kid. So um, my like formative um, salient memory is actually that my grandmother, who I lived with for a little while, I uh, started going to school with her and she told me this was in first grade in the early 80s. So she told me she was going to go take me to get my hair cut before we started school so that I look like Dorothy. And so I imagined Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz with the beautiful braids down both sides of my head and you know was going to be perfectly coiffed for school and she meant dorothy hamill and so when i showed up at school on the first day of first grade at this brand new school um i have a young man also a first grader named justin and i will always remember him said are you a boy or a girl and that, uh, that i think no. was um one of my most uh, salient memories. And so that I think is one of the reasons I wanted to become an elementary school teacher. So I learned to read very quickly on my own. Um, This was the kind of hooked on phonics work for me time. (laughs) And I became a voracious reader to the point that when I was in sixth grade, which was in an elementary school, the uh, librarian, Mrs. Rubin, Came to me one day and said, Come here, I have a special corner just for you. And she took me into this corner of the library with these books like The Yearling and A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And so I read A Catcher in the Rye in seventh grade and it all went over my head, but you know, it was just this uh, passion for reading. And so that, and also my experiences as the new kid all the time, and sometimes a new kid who people can actually recognize, <laughs> uh, really made me want to become an elementary school teacher. So that was, that was me in my early years.
0: There you go. And that's, that's pretty early to decide a career path. So um, is that you, you decided that pretty early on, and that's kind of what you stuck with all the way through middle school and high school and into college, right?
1: It is. Um, And you know, back when I was in first grade and I was like sick with the chicken pox, my parents just left, they went to work. (laughs) So I was alone. And so I would, um, play school by myself with my stuffed animals and I just stuck with it. I just knew, and much to my father's chagrin, he desperately wanted me to become an engineer like him. And, you know, he, he very much took me on all of these college tours and was like, look, they have this robust industrial and labor relations program. And I just was not having it. So, (laughs) so here I am, (laughs) 20 plus years later, still very secure in that, uh, decision.
0: Yeah. You're, I think that's rare for uh, somebody to under or realize from that young that that's what they wanted to do and then stick with it and actually do that, um, you know, because when I was in first grade, goodness, well, I was going to be a professional soccer player, I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> so that's awesome. Do you have any uh, memory of any teachers, maybe in particular, that uh, maybe in middle school, high school, where um, you're a little more, uh, I mean, you're kind of already set in your way, but was there, was there a teacher that you said, yes, this is definitely where I want to go?
1: I think um I had several elementary school teachers who were very warm and welcoming and loving. And I think I saw that in them and desperately wanted to be just like them. And then I had my English teacher, my junior year of high school, Mr. Markowitz, who we're friends on Facebook. And that's amazing. <laughs> um, was the one who I think made me believe in myself that I was smart enough to do that. So um he just constantly was challenging me, but also, um, believing in me. And so when I think back to the most influential teacher in my K-12 experience, it's definitely Mr. Markowitz.
0: Oh, well, shout out to Mr. Markowitz. There you go. <laughs> Mr.
1: Markowitz. I'll tell him this later because we're Facebook friends now. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, awesome. So uh, going to uh, college then you went to uh, SUNY, one of the SUNY branches, I forget SUNY, by the way, for anybody who's not from the East Coast is uh, State University of New York. Um, so what was what was your favorite experience uh, as a student or an undergraduate student in the College of Education?
1: So uh, I went to SUNY Geneseo and it's a very small town up by Rochester Buffalo area. <laughs> so it snows from September to May. Um, but my favorite experience was we uh, had a practicum experience for teaching, and we went into the city of Rochester to do that. So it was very different than being in very rural uh, Geneseo, where there was one main street and one traffic light. And when I was doing that, I got paired with a, a much older kindergarten teacher. He was, he, um, it was a man, obviously, but he loved those kids so much. And it was so rare and still is for me to see a male kindergarten teacher at the yeah. end of his career. And he was very influential on so much of um, the way that I believed in students. It was um, uh, a school in, in a really tough neighborhood at the time. And he had the most warm, welcoming, vibrant, classroom. Um, and I remember he looked, I asked him how long he had been a teacher and he looked at me. I mean, he looked like he was in his, uh, end of his career, I'll say. And he looked at me and said, I've been only been doing this for five years. This is what it does to you. <laughs> and, I was like, oh! and he was totally kidding. But, you know, again, very influential. One of my favorite activities because so much in education schools, you talk in theory, you know, you yeah. kind of plan these lesson plans that feel nebulous. And so getting to go there and work with a master seasoned teacher who very much loved what he was doing, um, I think, was super influential as well.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I um, I, I mentioned this on an uh, earlier podcast, but I am. Throughout the all the interviews that I've done, a recurring theme that has been coming up is the importance of connecting with those students and creating those relationships and showing how much you care for them as individuals. Um, so obviously, like you said, to see somebody at the end of the career who still has that passion and still has yes. that caring is um, just really, really cool. Um, he was
1: doubly because we had AM and PM kindergarten. And so the class would, it was two different classes. And you had it was to do it wild. twice in a row. Yeah.
0: I wish as an undergraduate student I had a class on the importance of building relationships. Absolutely. Right. You get like you said, you get all this theory and you get all this like, well, here's what you should do in this situation, or here's how you should build a lesson plan. But to actually get a class on, well, here's how to build relationships, because those are the things that are going to be important. And those are those are the things that are going to allow you to deal with discipline issues in a in a good and strong, uh not strong like emotionally but just like a a positive way almost um which is so important at the elementary level so um and that's where you ended up uh you were an elementary teacher for a few years what was your uh what grade did you teach
1: so i taught third grade and i taught fifth grade
0: okay um yeah, and it's amazing between those two years. It's such a difference. It is it is different worlds from year to year, They
1: start third grade as like, you know, almost toddlers, and they leave third grade as full blown people. It's incredible.
0: <laughs> third grade to me is where they start to understand that they don't have to listen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but third grade is also that actual point where they say the transition goes from learning how to read to or, uh, yeah, learning how to read to reading in order to learn. learn. Right. Yes, (laughs) Right. Um, so naturally then, uh, that I'm sure that that had some influence in, uh, where you are now, which is, uh, having, let's take a step back. So after being a teacher, you were an administrator, you said you were in this weird, like a hybrid principal, assistant principal thing for a few years and then became an assistant principal. Um, but just explain that again, because it's, it's such a unique position.
1: (laughs) So I, um, I, knew at some point i wanted to get a master's degree in virginia you're not required to get a master's degree to keep mm. teaching in some places you are and so i um left new york and went to virginia to um, northern virginia the suburbs suburbs of dc in alexandria city so right outside of dc um, and i was playing around with what i wanted to do a master's in and i kept coming back to like well i keep being like the team leader and so maybe leadership is for me And I went to GW, uh, George Washington University, and did my master's in ed leadership and administration. And oh boy, did I learn so much. (laughs) Um, And I actually didn't really want to take a leadership job when I got done with it, because I was so intimidated by the prospect Uh of it. Um, And I wound up the person who was in this role, so we were an extended school year, or not extended school year, that's a special education term, I'm sorry. We were a modified (laughs) school calendar year. You can tell I like in all these different worlds. So we basically were a year round school. And so the kids would go to school for a quarter or 10 weeks or so. And then there would be what's called an intercession. And so we did that because I was a teacher at the time at this amazing school on the west end of Alexandria. Where there were 40 different languages represented and it was incredibly diverse in all of the best ways. But we were also noticing that a lot of our students the, um, would go back to El Salvador for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. And that would be in the middle of the school year because that was when their parents could afford to take them. And so we were dealing with a lot of slide with reading and math because of that, mm. because they were gone for so long. And then, you know, we'd have the summer and they would, you know, not get any school then either. So we, as a teaching team, I keep saying we, it was really one of the most incredible experiences. We came together as a faculty and we were like, we want to do this, like we're invested in this. And there were probably 50 or so teachers and only two didn't agree with going to this new calendar. And so they were, they left to go to other schools, totally understandable, but the rest of us were there. And so I was on the ground floor of this and it was really to minimize learning loss. And so school would start in July, it would go all the way to October. And then there would be a two-week intercession, they called it, which would be opportunities for remediation and enrichment. And every child had an opportunity for at least part of the day to be enrichment. And so we did like cooking. I mean we there were professional, we were in DC. So there were like professional athletes who would run these incredible camps, um, like basketball camp in the mornings or the afternoons. And then we would remediate reading and math if the child needed. And the best part was it cost $5 for them or $25 for them for these two weeks. And so we almost the entire school would return for these. So I started as a teacher in that. And then I finished my program and the person who was the principal during these intercession times, so basically starting the entire school again, the The administrators during the regular school year were like, "This is our two week break. Bye, <laughs> <I'd love to laughs> you know, Here are the keys." And you know, we'd have 600 kids, and we'd have to start all over again with schedules and all of that. And so that person left, and I had finished and was a certified administrator and was someone who was already known and was teaching fifth grade at the time. Just and a natural I- fit. My principal was like you've got to do this and i was so scared but i did it and it was wild i mean three times a year i started a new school basically and um like i said it was just me <laughs> Like, do i get like an assistant principal <laughs> <laughs> um but i loved it and i wound up doing that for two years and then really becoming passionate about middle school especially as a fifth grade teacher you know i'm like this is kind of lost years especially for our students who were below benchmarks in reading and math. Like what happens to them when they go up to middle school? And so I wound up becoming an assistant, profe- assistant professor assistant principal at a middle school in a, within a different district in Northern Virginia. And so I did that for 2 years and that was really eye-opening for me in terms of working with middle school students and also middle school teachers who are very different from elementary school teachers yes. in um, a whole host of ways. <laughs> so yeah. That was really, um, a really valuable experience for me. And it, really, it led me to want to pursue my PhD in reading because I was finding that a lot of the students who were winding up in my office for discipline reasons at the, at the middle school level, when I probed a little deeper, they were reading well below benchmark and the teachers didn't know what to do with them. You know, there was a lot of talk from the English yeah. teachers who were like, "We're secondary English teachers. We're here for literary um, teaching. We're not here for literacy." And right. so that was like very eye-opening to me. And when I would have these conversations, um, they they were just not at all knowledgeable because they weren't required to be. And they, sure. you know, the question is, do they do they have to be? But we had these big groups of students who were below benchmark coming up into middle school, and that's when like all the supports were stripped. And, oh, yeah. you know, just like this expectation that you, um, are able to read, write, spell and do math. Otherwise, you know, you're kind of out the on SOL, your own.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, um, some, uh, my mom was a, a prior guest, uh, episode 24, if you want to go listen, but she, um, <laughs> she is a, uh, she was, uh, she has her PhD from, uh, Penn state, uh, and has done some really cool stuff with curriculum design within science, uh, science world, <laughs> science education anyway, world. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that she says, is, uh, you know, why, why does the school calendar have to be based by age? Right. And why does it have to be a whole year before we decide, okay, this student needs to redo this. Right. You know, why can't it go by trimesters or semesters right. or something, you know, it does it, they do it at the, the collegiate level, right. Every class is a semester, which still is an arbitrary length of time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, But I mean, it's yeah, to have a a school that's set up like that, where you get these two week breaks uh, every so often that you say, okay, the student, hey, come on, we got to do X, Y, and Z within this little thing that you're struggling with. I mean, how helpful is that?
1: Right in the middle of the year. I mean, it was interesting being a teacher in it because usually when you're a teacher and a, a traditional calendar, you have a whole summer to like recharge, refresh, start over again. And so I'm like, wait, I feel like I just did this. I think I just did this, but I can't remember <laughs> if I did it with you guys or the class before you because Takes we only did three summer. So it was yeah. it was interesting in that way. But the relationships with the kids, when you're seeing the kids for 10 and a half months out of the year instead of the typical like nine month, those were so valuable. We got to know families. They knew like, okay, they can take they can go back and visit their family in El Salvador for six weeks because you know this is the time that's carved out or 4 weeks actually and that really allowed them that flexibility as well and then we're going to ha- we're going to have you like we're going to catch you guys and we're going to keep you up and um
0: makes the holes in the, the net a lot smaller you get to catch all those students that who normally might fall through the cracks so um yeah super super cool i want to i wa- i wish we could dive so far into that but i want to keep this moving um uh, because you're you've been doing some really cool work now with uh Kind of two things that we're going to dive into. Sure. Um The first one is the Star Initiative here at Virginia University. So um, University of
1: Virginia. So oh, I'm, I'm like so you sorry. You're right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you corrected me at the beginning. As <laughs> yeah, same thing. It's the University of Virginia. We'll make sure to uh, get that right. Um, but no, uh, we kind of leapfrogged a little bit. Um, your PhD program and and the work that you uh, did with the literacy and the reading, but we're going to come back to that here in just a second. Um, so that is all, that is not uh, forgotten. But with this STAR initiative, um, this is kind of how we, we got connected in the first place was through um, this research that is being done now for uh, students with autism. Um, and as you were explaining it before we uh, hit record on this episode, um, it, it was just really, really fascinating, especially diving into some of those uh, echo programs that you said are modeled after uh, the medical world. Um, and I thought that that was su- super, super cool. So can you dive into that, uh, here really quick dive into those? What is that echo program? What does that mean? So the echo
1: model echo project started at the university of New Mexico with, um, hepatitis C. And so that's the C in echo and it's a completely virtual, uh, model. This is the
0: medical model.
1: This is the medical model. And so it was because in New Mexico, there was one specialist in hepatitis C and Patients were on wait lists to go see him. It would take six hours to drive out there. I've actually met him, Dr. Aurora. He's incredible. He started Shout this whole Dr. movement. Dr. Aurora. I know more about hepatitis C than I ever thought I would. <laughs> and so what he um, what he did is he started this echo model where it was him on a virtual network. So they call it a network. So he was kind of the spoke. Um, or the hub, I'm sorry, in this wheel. And then all these other primary care physicians were the spokes. And so he would meet with them weekly, and they would present a case about one of their patients with hepatitis C, and then he would give his recommendation. And so what it really did was um, what he calls learning loops. And because the other people on the call were also learning from this case, and then it included a, a... a didactic or a small professional development in something. And so he was able to reach so many more people. And so their goal is to reach, I think it's a billion people by 2025, but uh, the University of Wyoming, um, their Center for Disabilities has innovated the model to be ECHO in education. And so we've worked closely with them. They've been incredible mentors for us. And so the STAR initiative has taken the medical ECHO model with help from the University of Wyoming and turned it into an education model. We still do, um, there is still a model going on where our specialists, our psychologists, um, who know quite a bit about autism, work with pediatricians and so they're the hub. And then these pediatricians once a week get on the call and it's about assessing for autism, right? Very early, because we know the earlier we intervene, um, the, the greater the outcomes, the better the positive outcomes. And so we also know the pediatricians don't know a lot about autism. And so that's been really impactful. And then we've worked with teachers. So our very first ECHO network was 50 school leaders across Virginia and we had a few in other pockets. Um, thanks Twitter, <laughs> <We're from laughs> South Carolina from these places. And they were our spokes. And then the hub was um, autism specialists here at the University of Virginia. So I would represent special education and um, my colleague is a developmental psychologist, clinical psychologist, and so she'd represent that. We had some board certified behavior analysts. So our hub team would then have the school leaders present a case completely de-identified, all of Echo is completely de-identified, about a student with autism who was really perplexing maybe challenging behavior or maybe educational outcomes so they present it to this group these school leaders and then we would also teach them about autism because what we found is that they did not know
0: right a do lot that little that. Uh, professional development that didact what was it didactic, uh, didactic yeah didactic yeah
1: <laughs> that piece was really valuable for them because some of them didn't have any special education background in their administrator preparation programs um, and so this was, you know, they're kind of learning on the ground about it. And so we've had several echo networks now. We just finished one with caregivers during this COVID virtual yeah. school, um, where we met with caregivers. We This was bi-coastal, this was super exciting. So we had some caregivers in Seattle and California. Uh, one of our hub specialists uh, is a colleague who's at the University of Washington. Um, and so we were able to work with them about challenging behavior that their children were presenting during virtual school or even outside of virtual school and that was um we were so sad when that network was over and <laughs> feel so like um i don't know they you, you're it's so impactful and then they imprint on you cuz you're yeah. like i really i really want to make sure everything's going to be okay yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's that little teacher uh little it teacher is. heart that we all have <laughs> no but and um well, I was just, it, what's so cool about this program is that, especially now with, everybody knows what Zoom is now. When, yes. when it started, it wasn't quite as well known, but um, this is so useful for particularly rural communities, right? Yeah. Where you have these small, small towns. Like we, we lived in Colorado for three years and uh, my wife uh, is an audiologist and one of her classmates, I think if I remember correctly, graduated with seven people in her class yes. out yeah. in rural Eastern Colorado. And you know, to, to have a student with autism come through a school like that where they don't have a full-time specialist in that building Right. You can you can see immediately how impactful this kind of uh, program and this kind of network can be.
1: Our school leaders were from um, Southwest Virginia, which is very, very, very rural. And so, you know, they were like, we don't know what to do. We need help with the student. It's a nonverbal student. We don't have a lot of technology at our fingertips out here. Um, And, you know, that was so cool to be able to to learn and we learn so much from them as well so yeah it's about getting into underserved communities and it's all free so um they participate for free it's all virtual we try to have it at, you know different times of day our caregivers was at bedtime <laughs> so <laughs> that's one caregiver could escape while the other one was dealing with bedtime um and you know we just we find it to be an incredible way to connect outside of our own little bubbles and to be able to impact teachers. So we had an echo right before COVID hit in March, we had just wrapped an echo with special educators on autism. And you know these were um, 10 special educators who were working in self-contained classrooms and they didn't have a lot of colleagues who they could bounce ideas off of. Yeah. And so you know, there, we had an OT on our team, we had a speech pathologist on our team. And so it was having access to specialists um, at the university level, who, you know, sometimes can see things more through bird's eye view or tell teachers which angle to kind of pursue, um, that they, that, you know, sometimes they don't get in touch with those folks at the district for several weeks, or, you know, there's so many kids on the case, so they don't get around to touching base. And so that was immediately um, a source of, of information and support for them.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure a second, you know, kind of side benefit too of of something like this is that we kind of all live in our own little bubbles of reality. Like we know what our school day looks like and we know what our students look like and we know what our administration looks like. But then to realize how different everything is in different parts of the country, you know, like I said, living in Colorado for three years, it was surprisingly different from my (laughs) east coast roots which were it was still rural Pennsylvania but I mean just the pace of life is was slower out there so um people were a little nicer I hate to say (laughs) you know um but I mean it is it's funny you have like the United States as a country but then each like micro area has its own little culture that you get to learn about and get to uh you know figure out what, what it is that makes them a little bit different. Um, which, you know, if, if there's anything that we've learned from 2020, learning more about our differences might be a beneficial thing too. So
1: I totally agree with you.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, so such a cool program. Uh, thanks for diving into that. And now let's transition to what your passion is and which, uh, what your dissertation was when you were, uh, coming through and working on this. And this is, um, Maybe for people who are listening, who are teachers and yes. who might want to be administrators or who are teachers and want to point a finger at their administrator. <laughs> um, you're doing some work with uh, really helping to make sure that uh, our principals and administrators are knowledgeable about the learning process when it comes to reading in particular. So. Uh, Dive dive us in. Where where do we start with this?
1: (laughs) We go back to the beginning. Um, just kidding. (laughs) Once upon a time. (laughs) Once upon a time. So we go back to the year 1998 when I was in my own undergraduate program at SUNY Geneseo. um, And I was taught how to teach reading in a very ineffective way that we know is ineffective now. Um, Whole language. And it was really about immersing kids in books and, you know, really helping them memorize and use picture cues and kind of all these supports that has been shown to actually be disadvantageous for a lot of kids. And so I, when I started teaching, I was teaching um, at a school that was about 85% free and reduced lunch um, students. And so it was already kind of at a school that was under-resourced in a lot of ways um, and, I was a third grade teacher, like fresh off of my undergrad, like I can do this and change the world. And (laughs) I would say 85% of my kids were not meeting grade level benchmarks. And this was just the beginning. A little bit of a slap to the
0: face. Right.
1: And no child left behind. So now we've got standardized testing in third grade. Right. So here I was, it's like, I can do this. I just got to love how to read. I learned how to read and it was so easy (laughs) to Oh my gosh, like, and, <laughs> and, and like everybody's watching <laughs> these standardized
0: yeah. stuff.
1: Um, yeah. And so, you know, I kind of went back into the very limited bag of tricks I had. And I realized over and over and over again that what I was doing was not helping. And so I went to, wasn't closing the gap for my readers. And I went to my reading specialist at the time. And I went to my principal at the time. And I was like, I need help and I need more support. And they were like, we need to get professional development. And the professional development we got was in a system that is also not at all effective. And so, you know, I became kind of indoctrinated in this way because that was what was very popular at the time. And, and I think what I've realized looking back, doing so much reflection and thinking about, you know, I'm like, I have so much like blood on my hands with this, you know, I know better now. Um, but at the time, the, the research world was really split on this. And, you know, there just, there were so many casualties of that. And it became about um, not only having kids really loving to read. And so, of course, the 40% of kids who are going to learn to read, I was one of them, despite anything we do, you know, they're going to love to read and that's going to be incredible. And that's yay, but we can't just teach that 40%. And I think There became it became about, well, there's something about the something wrong with the kids who can't learn to read. And so that just wasn't sitting well with me because I'm like, I'm looking at research and it's not saying that kids who, um, you know, are considered economically disadvantaged can't learn to read. (laughs) You know, there's nothing here saying that we can't do this. And so it kind of started me on this journey. And I realized as I was talking to colleagues and especially my administrators that either they would say things like, I was a high school social studies teacher, even though I'm an elementary school principal. I don't know anything about reading. Go talk to the reading specialist. Or, you know, it was like very fully indoctrinated in this way that was just repeatedly ineffective um, in these approaches. And really. Deep
0: breath that's hard to get out of.
1: Exactly. You know, it's like and. And what I found and what I know to be true because I was an administrator is that sometimes administrators become influenced and not informed. That's not my quote. That's Mm. from um, Ernesto Ortiz, who's an amazing principal in upstate New York. Highly recommend. I'll put that in my exit ticket. Um, But, you know, it's like the principals or the administrators I worked with and who were colleagues of mine we're like i don't really understand reading and so i'm going to go to this conference for principals and i'm going to see this latest software that's going to promise me all these results and so we're going to buy it and we're going to be influenced in this way instead of being informed on it and i wound up really becoming very passionate about this like how is it in my mind that an elementary school principal can can you know not can become an elementary school principal without knowing and understanding how Early
0: childhood education write, yeah.
1: and how you learn to read. Because I would argue, and I know I'm very passionate about reading, but we know that that reading is one of the most, if not the most, powerful things that we have to give a child when they leave school because it is associated with so many outcomes. And when health outcomes, financial yeah. outcomes, economic outcomes, um, and so when we're not when kids are leaving our classrooms and our schools not learning to read that's a, an enormous failure and it is very hard to then as students get older catch them up because the gap yeah. just keeps widening
0: Absolutely. and widening and um, like you said especially with you know that that you know second third fourth grade time period where yes. they shift from i, I messed it up the first time but they shift from learning how <laughs> to read to learning from reading. I think I still messed it up, but it's I mean, okay. that that shift, how, I mean, how crucial is that by, by third grade, if they're behind all of a sudden, they're, they're already on this path oh, that if they don't get caught up,
1: if they're behind in first grade already, we've yeah. got to start working. So here are things that we know to be true now, based on a whole decades of research. Um, we know to be true that we need to screen kids Um, as soon as kindergarten, we need to screen them often. And we know that when they're not meeting benchmarks, we need to intervene intensively until they are meeting benchmarks. And we know that if we start that in kindergarten and we do it with fidelity and we use validated empirical screeners, um, and we know that if we target skill deficits for kids in reading in intensive ways, all kids, that we can catch up all but about 5% of kids by the end of second grade. That's wow. powerful.
0: That is huge, yeah.
1: And then you'll hear numbers thrown around. Like, you know, we've got uh, 20% of kids who are struggling to to read in second grade. And and this isn't my quote. I always like to cite the source. But, you know, that's <laughs> what i like, <laughs> like. a good researcher. Like a good researcher. Emily Hanford talks about that as not dyslexia, but dystechia. We've got curriculum mm. casualties, right? It's not only about... Um, and the fact that we often don't have the resources to provide these intensive interventions. Maybe we're not using validated screeners that are you know, looking at specific skills that we know need to be in place. But it's also that the folks who are the leaders at the school, at the district, even at the state levels themselves often aren't knowledgeable about reading. And what I know as a teacher is that my administrators would come in and they would evaluate me based on the curriculum that the district was saying I needed to implement, Mm -hmm. whether or not that was effective, and whether or not I knew (laughs) that it was, you know, best practice or not. And especially, so I spent four years after I finished my PhD working in persistently low achieving schools as as a partner. And you know what I found was the principals who knew kind of had the lower capacity and knew the least about what we call the science of reading or what we know that um, students seem to have in terms of effective instruction. Sure. Those that felt the kind of weakest on that or didn't have a lot of capacity in that tended to be the ones who were either um, very likely to w- want their teachers to stick to a program in their evaluations, like do this program with fidelity and you know why aren't you doing this this way and not really having the depth of knowledge and the teachers knew there wasn't a depth of knowledge there i mean you can't fool yeah a group yeah. of teachers <laughs> i've been on both sides of that right we got to know we got to prove we know what we're talking about and have walked the walk um but also at the district level it was it's been very problematic because we have instructional leaders in some of the highest positions in the divisions in the state who are not knowledgeable about reading and so i became really passionate about hey are they required to know this information (laughs) like wait a second because no doubt i don't want to ever give the impression that an administrator's job is not extraordinarily difficult. They have
0: so many balls that they're juggling. Yeah, Oh, yeah. definitely got to acknowledge that for sure.
1: Oh, 1000%. And so, (laughs) you know, I don't ever want to come off as being kind of flippant about all of the things that they do. But we also know from research that instructional leadership is second to only instruction in the classroom to student achievement, right? So it's Mm. the second most factor in student achievement. And so one of the things that I work with administrators on now is, you know, how are you an instructional leader? Not just are we, you know, keeping the lights on, getting the buses unloaded, doing all these yeah. things, because you know, like the three B's, right? Buses, behavior and books. I remember this. <laughs> I remember this. But, you know, how are we how are you an instructional leader? Because instructional leadership matters and it matters so much. And it's almost impossible to be an instructional leader and not have an understanding and knowledge of how reading develops and what effective reading instruction looks like. So what I found, and I found this in 2014 when I was doing my dissertation, and I found this in 2020, is that there are zero states, zero states that require that administrators for especially from elementary school, right? So maybe high school, sure, but at the elementary level, zero states require that. Um, administrators have, and then demonstrate this knowledge of reading. And that's been one of the most frustrating things ever. Like it makes me want to sleep inside. (laughs) To me, I always use this analogy, you know, when you're thinking about leadership, right? So when we're talking about administrative certification, we're not just talking about building administrators, but we're talking about district administrators, right? Those superintendent licensure, So you're basically the CEO of your school and reading is the number one thing that needs to come out of there. And so to me, that's like the CEO of Honda getting up and saying like, well, I don't know anything about how the cars are made, but we're doing <laughs> a good job. <laughs> like that's that is just so mind boggling to me. Um, and so I feel like the other thing I found was that for uh, zero states require that if you want to be an elementary school principal, you needed to be an elementary school teacher. So a lot of times we're finding it's secondary teachers who then become elementary school teachers sure. And so if you don't add that layer in there of like, you need to take a class on reading and not only just take a class, you need to demonstrate this knowledge. And, and states are starting to require that K-3 teachers not only have this knowledge, but that they demonstrate it on an assessment. So, you know, to me, it's like this easy leap to like, why are we doing this for administrators? And I think when you're a teacher, and it becomes very frustrating when you feel like you don't have that instructional leadership support or you're being evaluated by someone who maybe doesn't have the depth of knowledge sure. or you can't, you're going to professional developments that just aren't um, worth your time in a lot of ways because you know they're not being led from a knowledgeable perspective.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, as a music teacher, I certainly have, <laughs> have been in a few uh, uh, professional developments that say that I'm sitting there going... I love you guys, but I'm not going to use this at all. Um, but no, I mean, just that that premise that, uh, you know, I've, I've got a great principal currently and um, I've got great administration that, you know, I really appreciate them very much. But, and they both, the the ones who have come in and who have observed me as a teacher, both straight up acknowledge, I don't know anything about what you're doing. And like, that's good because I get to inform them and I get to teach
1: right, them. And, right.
0: But it's also like, well, then that's not helping me become a better teacher. Right.
1: Exactly. Well, and it's not like the state or your district comes to you and says, why aren't all your drum players, you know, playing the drums to this bench? And <laughs> so it becomes, I love music teachers, don't get me wrong, but it becomes <laughs> even higher stakes when, you know, teachers are being evaluated Absolutely. on reading scores or principals even are being evaluated on reading scores, but they're not necessarily knowledgeable about, yeah. you know, how the sausage gets made. And that's <laughs> not okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, yes. I, I, again, going back to the premise that reading is really, I mean, as a music teacher, I'm biased towards wanting to do all my stuff that I can for music, but I, I sit here and I acknowledge that yes, reading probably is the most important thing that we can arm our students with when they leave and go into the real world. Because a couple things, one language is all around us. And if like, you just, you need to be able to read to fully integrate into society. And two is that, um, I've, I've said this before, too, is that our reality is based on our language, right? We give words to certain things. And if you don't have a word for that item, then you don't know what to call it. You don't know how it works. I don't know. Um, so, yes, language obviously is very, very important. For those teachers who are listening right now saying, yes, that's my principal, or, ooh, maybe I shouldn't be a principal now. Um, where I mean, where's, where's the path that they should take? Like, how do you either if you agree with this idea, how do you start to arm yourself with different tools that you can kind of do a nudge nudge to your administrator? Or how do you how do they get involved in kind of helping to lead this charge and saying, yes, this is something that should be mandated by states?
1: So I think one of the things um, is to really first make sure that you're knowledgeable as well. And so I will (laughs) include this in the exit tickets. But there, there are generations of us, myself included, who um, weren't taught the most researched, effective ways to teach reading. And I say that now as a parent of a child who's struggling with reading. And so, you know, that has been a very humbling thing for me in a lot of ways. And um, what we could be doing, and I'll include some resources you can put in the show notes. We just have to make sure that we know. We know the science of reading. We understand the science of reading. Many of the the departments of education across the country are starting to require this knowledge of teachers um, in terms of not only um, understanding our reading develops but also what effective instruction looks like and so i'd say first do your own um, real dive on yourself yeah. and that's that can be tricky right that's like evaluation process and one of the things that i talk to teachers about a lot is if 80 percent of your students aren't meeting the benchmark that is not a student problem. That becomes a tier one kind of classroom instruction problem. And I work with teachers, I'm working um, with a district nearby here, and we sit in these team meetings and it's like, yeah, you know, only 50% of your kids are meeting this reading benchmark or the screening data. And so this isn't really about the kids. This is kind of about like, what are you doing? That we need to make sure we need to target these skills. So first yourself, arm yourself. And then when you've got the the principal who so many principals i've met so many principals in my career hundreds of them and i'd say three quarters of them are like well that's not i have a reading specialist for that i just you know i don't really know so it's really about coming alongside the principal and about inviting the principal in and or the assistant principal but it's about saying will you come to this professional development will you read this book with me Will you um, come to our first grade, what, you know, book club and do this and inviting the principal in because a lot of times, and I spent four years working with partnering with school districts where the principals would be like, okay, professional development time. I've got to go take care of this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. I'm out. (laughs) And it's like, no, you're the instructional leader. (laughs) Like you're supposed to be in here with us learning about this, eventually (laughs) leading it. Um, So, you know, it's about having those conversations and I, I like the, the premise.
0: Yeah. I like what you said about inviting them into it instead of like saying, Hey, you should go check this out or vice versa. Right. Like, uh, it just reminds me of the quote that a, a rope cannot be pushed. It can only be pulled. Exactly. Um, that is and a you great gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta pull them along with you. Um, and they're going to be, they're going to go the way that you're going. Um, yeah, wow. I can't believe that it has been now I don't what is it? It's close to an hour. Uh so it is about time to wrap us up but is there anything that you wanted to uh touch on briefly before we go to our exit ticket questions?
1: You know, I I don't think so. Um I think we kind of covered everything. The one thing I said I don't think so and I'm like, actually I have one
0: thing. <laughs> You're not the first person to do it, you won't be the last. Exactly. <laughs> I'm
1: like, no, we can wrap up. Wait, I want to say more. Um <laughs> you know, I think it's really instructional leadership is one of the most impactful things and i think we can all think about the principals who are really good at the person stuff you know the like person-to-person stuff but maybe not so much the instructional leader the ones who would say to me when i was a teacher i don't i don't come and give you feedback you're doing a great job and i'm like but i want the feedback you know like um ignoring me doesn't really give me that emotion (laughs) (laughs) but we also can think of the principals and hopefully you know we've had one or two of them in our careers who were the really powerful instructional leaders and i think that you know i i've always thought there are more teachers and principals in this country than there are waiters and waitresses right and so when we're thinking about the fact that there is there's this is like these are human capital. These are people. And no one wants to be bad at their job. (laughs) No one, you know, wants to go in and say, I don't know anything about what I'm doing. Um, And if anything, I've been an administrator. It is terrifying sometimes. (laughs) It's it's like, oh my goodness, they're all looking at me. Um, So it's really about being open and honest and saying like, this is my journey with it. And so if you've had an evolution in terms of realizing that the way that we're teaching reading is not effective. We need to redo some things. We need to look carefully at it. It's not about showing it to the principal. It's really about sharing it with the administrator and and saying, you know, hey, we both didn't know a lot about this. So like, let's do this book study or let's try this out. Can you come to these meetings? Can we have these conversations about it? Um, And I think that that, that actually goes a lot farther. And, and we worked on facilitating that kind of thing when we were working with these persistently low achieving schools, as opposed to seeing it as like an us and them. Because we all know teachers have initiative fatigue. You know, We all know the teachers know that they can wait out the leader who's ineffective. We just wait them out a couple years, the next one will come in. And we all know teachers, I was one of them, who's like, yeah, yeah, they're telling me to do this. I'm just going to close the door and know what I, you know, do what I've always known how to do. And so when we can find that relationship as a teacher and an instructional leader, it is powerful and and research shows it has major impacts.
0: Fantastic. Well, this was a rather eclectic uh, episode because so we covered yeah, covered a lot of different uh, strands, but I think it was all beneficial. I hope it was all beneficial. I'm sure my listeners will tell me if it wasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, let's move to our exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I ask everyone. And the first question is, what book recommendation do you have for teachers to go read?
1: This one's for teachers and administrators, and that Perfect. is um, "Essentials of Assessing, Preventing, and Overcoming Reading Difficulties" by David Kilpatrick.
0: All right, can you give us a thirty-second synopsis? What's in that book?
1: <laughs> uh, Dr. Kilpatrick really takes it into layman's terms and talks about what reading looks like um, as it develops. What are really the key components of reading? How do you assess that those components to make sure that you're really understanding? Um, if a student is developing uh, proficiently in them or not, how, what types of instruction needs to be occurring to make sure that we're targeting them. And then if we do have a student not meeting benchmark, first of all, how do we show that? And then second of all, how do we remediate that in reading?
0: Awesome. And I always like when when somebody starts it with, well, in layman's terms, I'm like, yes, okay, I can, I can relate.
1: Well, it's <laughs> so, so overwhelming, great. right? Because like, I know it when I is. first started getting into reading, they're like, this is the brain, and this is what the brain does during reading, and I'm like, shut down, shut down, shut down.
0: <laughs> no, I'm but I mean, crazy. I think research in general does that, right? That is, that is I mean, it's very academic. So anytime somebody can take the new research and put it into actionable steps, an actionable, uh, you know, curriculum or whatever, um, that's that's very very All beneficial.
1: You can take it into meetings about students. You can take it into all of your about uh, your kind of um, student support team meetings. You can. it's, It's an incredible resource. It's it's amazing. I think it's an incredible book.
0: Awesome. Question number two is what resource would you suggest? This can be a hard copy or an online resource.
1: So I would suggest the American public media reports. There's three of them by Emily Hanford for teachers, and I wrote them down, so I made sure I got them right. It's hard words, which came out in 2018, at a loss for words, which came out in 2019, and what the words say, that came out in 2020. And I think that um, is one of the most impactful things that you can uh, hear, listen, read, um, and learn about the history of reading and kind of why we're continuing to have reading failure and really staggering numbers um across the country.
0: And what I like most about that is that it was 2018, 2019, 2020 and not
1: 1921 and 1974 and No, I have used very these, recent. um I've used these reports with uh teachers when I do professional development. I've sent them to caregivers and listen to it with your principal or read mm. it with your principal um and have that kind of be what we start to talk about.
0: Perfect. Question number three is: What piece of advice would you like to give to teachers, maybe particularly teachers who are just starting out their careers?
1: Um, I would say that in my after I learned about this, the golden rule for me has always been the eighty and twenty. So, if eighty percent of my kids are not meeting benchmarks, then I need to take a step back and look at what I'm doing. That's that's my instruction, and I use this at the graduate level when I teach graduate students as well. 80, 20. Um, And, you know, it doesn't mean that you didn't do an effective job, it just means that whatever you tried didn't work and you got to go back and try it again.
0: Perfect. I mean, that 80-20 rule pops up over and over and over in multiple different things. And it's just Good. such a great rule. My favorite is uh, when it comes to group uh, group activities, 80% of the work will be done by 20% of the students. So you got to be careful with that one. <laughs> you got to stay on top of your kids with that one.
1: I'm thinking of my RGI triangle, 80% tier
0: one. <laughs> awesome. And then if anybody has any questions about what we talked about on the show, or just wants to reach out to you, where would be the best place to send them?
1: So um, you can email me at gail at virginia.edu at the University of Virginia. And <laughs> and then I'm also on Twitter, although I'm not very good at tweeting. Um, but I am.
0: G- you at least there.
1: <laughs> I'm there. I'm there. And I like to like things, but I'm not very good at tweeting on <laughs> myself. Um, but uh, it's G.E. LeVette. L-O-V-E-T-T-E.
0: All right. And we will link that all in our show notes. So. Yeah, Dr. Gail Levette, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. This was a blast.
1: This was so great. It was so good to talk to you.
0: All right, there you go. Um, big thank you, as always, to Dr. Gail Levette for joining me on this episode. Yeah, there was a ton of great information in that conversation, I felt. Um, but I think it can be best summed up in uh, what Gail said about instructional leadership. When we look at student achievement, um, obviously, the instruction that takes place in the classroom is the largest factor. But second to that is the instructional leadership, essentially meaning that outside the teacher, <laughs> the people who teach the teachers are the next most important part of student success. So we should hold these people accountable, <laughs> right? Um, and obviously, principals and administrators, they juggle so many different balls. Um, and so I, I'm not saying that we they have plenty of space on their plate to make sure that they go get all this training. Um, and, you know, especially with, with today, um, you know, there's, there's so many different nuances of, of balancing all the different uh, political nuances that come with serving a diverse community population. Um, but when you consider the purpose of education and when you look at the structure of school leadership, um, there's, there's honestly, there's probably an imbalance there, right? There's probably too many teachers for the number of uh, leadership positions that are there. Right, it depends on the school, but you know some schools have no assistant principals, and some schools have four assistant principals plus uh, a couple of different instructional coaches. I mean, it's very varied in that, right? It's very school specific. But um, I guess I I acknowledge that I'm not really providing a solution here. I'm just posing a question. But regardless, I think it makes a lot of sense to really reevaluate um, our structure. Right, and create a system where the person who is supposed to be coming into our classrooms and observing and critiquing and mentoring us on our teaching—it's important that they are actually knowledgeable about the process of how we teach. Right. Um, so, there's my two cents. <laughs> uh, again, um, everything that we talked about on this episode, you can find on our show notes page. Again, slash show 27 where you will find links to our Facebook group, uh, links to signing up for the weekly newsletter, all of the affiliate links to purchase some of those books, and of course, the teacher tees, which are Jabadoo originals. You can only find them on our website. So go check that out, jabadoocom slash show 27. And until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, Please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you, I appreciate you, and I will see you on the next episode of the Jabbadoo Education Podcast.